Today we are starting a brand new sermon series. This series is going to be focused on a single book of the Bible. It's going to be on the, uh, we're going to basically just go through chapter through chapter, right through the book of Daniel. Basically going to do about a chapter a week as we go through the whole book and see what lessons God has for us in this book of Daniel. And we encourage you, uh, as over these next couple of months, to be reading regularly from the book of Daniel in your own personal devotion time when you're reading your Bible. If you uh, spend some time reading Daniel, it will help you to, first of all, having heard the sermons will help you understand your reading better, and also having done the reading will help you understand the sermons better. So it'll be a great thing for everyone if you uh, spend some time reading the book of Daniel. And like I said, we're going to cover one chapter a week, at least for the first seven chapters. So it should be pretty easy to follow along with where we're going to be as you do your reading. And Daniel is one of the uh, well-known books and characters from the Bible. Um, Of course, we have this cool lion graphic. I really like the look of that thing there. And of course, that's because lions come into the story in chapter six. And uh, that'll be uh, fun when we get to to the lions there. But um, The book is both historical and prophetic. Uh, It tells us about historical events, and it also tells us about some visions and dreams that Daniel had, uh, and some other people too, that predicted history. And most of the prediction comes in the second half of the book, and we'll talk a lot more about that when we we get to that second half of the book. But the historical section, the stories in the beginning, um, they require some understanding of their historical context in order to really understand them best and to understand the meaning of the story. So we're going to start out with some historical context of what's happening when we begin the book of Daniel. And uh, way back in the book of Deuteronomy, right? This is one of the first books of the Bible. When the people of Israel had just finished their exodus up out of Egypt, out of slavery, and had come across the promised land, and they'd stopped at Mount Sinai and received the law on, on Mount Sinai. And, uh, and then when they get, and they're just about to enter the promised land, God gave them a series of promises and warnings. As they uh, are about to enter the land, um, God promised the Jews that if they stayed faithful to him and they worshiped him only, that he would bless them and give them the promised land to be their land forever. That was the promise that he made, but he also gave warnings. And the warning was that if they did not follow the law that he had given them and they did not stay faithful, to him and worship only the one true God, that he would bring on them the very same punishment that they were about to be his instruments to bring that punishment on the people that were in the land at that time. So the, the people of Israel were going to be used by God to punish the people that were in the land, drive them out of the land. And God said, you're going to be in the land now, but if you sin the way that those people did, the very same thing is going to happen to you. I'm going to bring another nation in and they are going to conquer you and drive you from the land. And these promises and warnings that uh, God gave them right as they were about to enter the land were then repeated over and over again over the centuries by God's prophets. And and here's an example of one of the final prophets uh, who uh, gave this warning. This is the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah actually lived to see this happen. So he was predicting it. uh, It was very near future for him when he talked about it in Jeremiah chapter 25. And verse 4 is where we're going to start. And it says, this is, uh, Then the word of the Lord came to me. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Sorry, I'm in the... That was chapter 24. Chapter 25. Um, <laughs> I was like, that's not right. Chapter 25, verse 4. And though the Lord has sent his servants, the prophets, to you again and again, 
you have not listened or paid attention. They said, turn now each of you from your evil ways and your evil practices so that you can stay in the land the Lord gave you and your ancestors forever and ever. Um, Do not follow other gods to serve and worship them. Do not arouse my anger with what your hands have made. Then I will not harm you. But you did not listen to me, declares the Lord. And you have aroused my anger with what your hands have made and you have brought harm on yourselves. Therefore, the Lord Almighty says, because you have not listened to my words, I will summon all the peoples of the north and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, declares the Lord, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. So God is not impatient with his people, right? He says he gave them many chances to change. He kept sending his servants over and over, the prophets, with this message. I'm warning you, if you don't stop worshiping idols, if you don't stop uh, disobeying God's law, that this is going to happen. And, and there were some times when people listened to the prophets, and there were some good years in there when they had some good leadership, and the, and the nation was uh, on a good track for, for certain periods. But overall, the trajectory was downhill. And um, until then, we come to the days of Jeremiah when things were, were uh, past the point of no return. And he mentions there Nebuchadnezzar, and you know that name Nebuchadnezzar, right? He is one of the main characters in the book of Daniel, and he is the king of Babylon, which is the rising dominant power in the, that part of the world at that time. And Jeremiah delivers God's message that because the God's people have failed to heed God's warnings... And the warning, we just read the warning, right? So this means that they were worshiping idols, they were worshiping false gods, and they were doing all these things that he's warned them against, and they have failed to listen to all their warnings. So so God is going to summon Nebuchadnezzar, and God calls Nebuchadnezzar here in this verse his servant. And that's interesting. Um, We're going to look back on this, and we're going to see more about how Nebuchadnezzar acts as God's servant in, in later chapters. For now, I just want you to notice that uh, he is called here God's servant, and this is despite the fact that Nebuchadnezzar is definitely not someone who's worshiping God, right? Nebuchadnezzar, uh, at this point in the story at least, and probably later as well, um, is not a, a follower of the one true God, but he is God's servant because God is using him for his purposes and to do his thing whether Nebuchadnezzar realizes it or not. And why is God doing this? What does Jeremiah say? Why is God bringing the Babylonians and these others to come and conquer his people? It's because of the sinfulness of the people. And the writings of the prophets in the Bible are full of descriptions of all of their sins and failures and all the things that they have done that have brought about the judgment of God. Um, The sin focused on here is the worship of other gods, but they were also failing to follow God's will in many other ways as well. And in the book of 2 Kings, it tells the story of uh, what happened when Jeremiah's prophecy was fulfilled. Here in uh, 2 Kings chapter 24, verses 1 and 2, it says, During Jehoiakim's reign, he was one of the kings of, of Israel and Jerusalem, during Jehoiakim's reign, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, invaded the land, and Jehoiakim became his vassal for three years. But then he turned against Nebuchadnezzar and rebelled. And the Lord sent Babylonian, Aramean, Moabite, and Ammonite raiders against him to destroy Judah 
in accordance with the word of the Lord proclaimed by his servants, the prophets. So, um, oh, sorry, we're going to go on a couple more verses here. Verse 3, surely these things happened to Judah according to the Lord's command in order to remove them from his presence because of the sins of Manasseh and all that he had done, including the shedding of innocent blood. For he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord was not willing to forgive. So we see uh, there's a reference here to Manasseh, who was one of the kings who lived a few decades before this. Uh, He was one of the worst kings ever to rule in Jerusalem. And it says specifically that in addition to worshiping other gods and things, the Bible tells us that he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood. So injustice, even to the point of the death of the innocent, was the dominant way of things in this evil society um, in the promised land with God's people. And the text tells us clearly, again, that the defeat of God's people by the Babylonians was God's own doing. This was God's judgment for which he had waited very patiently to give them opportunities, but was now at the point where he was not willing to overlook it any longer, and the punishment had arrived. And now that sets the stage for the book of Daniel, where we see then in Daniel chapter 1 how Daniel fits into this historical setting. So Daniel chapter 1 and verse 1 tells us, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. So the same emphasis here that we saw in the other two uh, passages, that uh, it is the Lord himself who hands his people over to the Babylonians. And this was the first time that the Babylonians attacked Jerusalem. We're not going to get into all the history of it now, but this was not the last time that they attacked. There were, in fact, three different attacks, each one worse than the than the last with the third one when they finally destroyed the city completely. But this first attack, mentioned here in Daniel chapter 1, the Jews apparently surrendered fairly quickly to Nebuchadnezzar at this time, and there was not a lot of uh, fighting or a lot of bloodshed, and it was not a long, drawn-out battle. Uh, They surrendered, and uh, and, uh, they uh, did not have to destroy the city. But in order to demonstrate his dominance of Israel, Nebuchadnezzar took some of the articles from the temple of God and took them back and put them in the storehouses of his own God back in Babylon. And this was a, a, uh, a way to show that he was dominant over these people and that he could do what he wanted. Um, and, uh, and they were trophies of his conquest. And God lets it happen. In fact, God is causing this to happen as a punishment for the sins of his people. And in the next section, we see that uh, Nebuchadnezzar also takes something else back to Babylon. It says, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. And he was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. Um, They were to be trained, or the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, and they were to be trained for three years 
And after that, they were entered into the king's service. So this tactic of the Babylonians seemed to have two purposes. First of all, he's removing from the conquered land the, the best and the brightest, the most ambitious, the, the, the best leaders from that land in order to weaken the people who remain. Without strong leaders, they will be more likely to be submissive to the Babylonians. And then secondly, the Babylonians also felt that if they could get these guys who were the, 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 the smartest, the, 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 the best and the brightest of all the nations they conquered and bring them into Babylon, that they themselves would benefit from this talent of people that would come in to uh, work in their own system. And so these were already educated young men, but they were about to get what amounted to a ca- uh, college education in Babylonian culture and the way, Babylonian way of doing things. And three years of training, after which they were to enter the king's service, which means they were all uh, on track for government jobs working in Babylon. And even during their training, it says everything would be provided for them. They were given daily provisions from the king's own table. And, and that means it's more than just food. It means that everything was going to be provided for them from the king's treasury during their three years of training. And then verse 6 tells us, uh, among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And the chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. So we are now introduced to our heroes of the story, right? These are the guys you've heard of, uh, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, four young men from among the nobility and royalty of Judah who were among the best and the brightest of Israel and were chosen to be taken into the service of the king. And uh, we're not told exactly what they thought about this, um, but as much as it was better than some of the alternatives when you get conquered, like dying in battle or being crushed and sent into poverty, they were, they were being uh, given into a, a, a relatively good situation, but they had no choice in the matter. They were being taken away from their homes and their culture and all their friends and family and everything and taken away to serve a foreign king. And that included taking them away from the worship of their God. And Old Testament Judaism was very focused on the temple in Jerusalem. The temple was essential for proper worship of God. It was the only legitimate place to offer sacrifices. So how are these guys going to worship God in a foreign land? And how are they going to keep the Day of Atonement? How are they going to celebrate the Passover in a foreign country? How could they stay faithful to God living in exile? And that is one of the big questions that the whole book of Daniel deals with, is how are these people going to stay faithful to God living in a hostile society in Babylon? Now, we just saw that Israel was not exactly doing great in their faithfulness to God before this, right? Um, that's why God brought Nebuchadnezzar and, uh, and, and to conquer them. But because uh, the Bible consistently teaches that even in times when it seems like the whole nation is all going the wrong way, there, God still has a remnant that are faithful. And one of the most famous stories of that is, uh, that illustrates this uh, idea of a remnant is from the life of the prophet Elijah. Elijah lived in a time when the people of God were combining the worship of Canaanite gods, especially Baal and Ashtoreth, with the worship of 
of the one true God. And Elijah was trying to bring God's message to the people that they must stop this. But he faces persecution, especially from the the queen and the king are persecuting him. And so he flees from them. And in a moment of discouragement, he tells God, he says, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to the death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And God tells Elijah, Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. So Elijah feels like I'm the only faithful person left in the whole world. It's just me that's doing it right. And even when things were that bad, um, God says, no, actually there's 7,000 people in the remnant of faithful Israel who are still uh, refusing to worship the idols and are, are uh, still faithful to God. And he has this remnant, even when the culture as a whole is going down the path of sin. And it, it looks like Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah have been among that remnant of faithful people all this time, living in Jerusalem, even in the midst of the corrupt society of their day. Um, they were not the only four who were taken from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, right? It says that among those who were taken were these four. What happened to the rest of the guys? Well, we don't know. It doesn't say anything about them. But I'm, my assumption is they were not among the remnant. And so when they got to Babylon, they just kind of went along with the program and, uh, and blended into Babylonian society, and there's no story to tell. But these four stayed faithful to God. Um, so these guys are already living for God in, in a corrupt society, but at least at that point they were living uh, among uh, the rest of the remnant, and they were still had the temple in Jerusalem, and they were in their own uh, land, and, and, and at least in Israel, God was worshipped alongside other gods, even by the, by the unfaithful people. But now they were being taken completely away from all of that, and they were being taught all about the Babylonian way of thinking, including the Babylonian gods and the Babylonian religion. And as part of their assimilation into Babylonian society, they're given new Babylonian names, as we just saw. Now, often in the Bible, names have meanings. And, uh, and here are the meanings of the Hebrew names that these four guys had. Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah, God has been gracious. Mishael, the grammar on this one's a little weird, but if you think about it, who is what God is? And then Azariah means God has helped. But those names are taken away, and they are given new Babylonian names, and their new names mean, uh, these, these are the meanings of their new names. Belteshazzar means Bel will protect. Bel is one of the Babylonian gods. Shadrach, inspired by Aku, another of the Babylonian gods. Meshach, belonging to Aku, and Abednego, servant of Nebo. Their Jewish names honored God. Their Babylonian names honored the gods of Babylon. 
And their Babylonian education was aimed at making these guys good Babylonians. They were being groomed to conform to the ways of Babylon, including their religion. And taking on new names that reflected this new identity was a part of their re-education. It's in verse 8 that we see that these four were determined that despite all that was happening to them, despite the fact that God had brought this judgment on their, on their society, and despite the fact that the Babylonians were doing whatever they wanted to them, they were still going to stay faithful to God. So we see that in verse 8. It says, But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. And we'll see in a moment that the other three guys were, were with Daniel in this. He's the only one mentioned here. But. And <clears throat> it's not perfectly clear in the text here. It doesn't give us a reason. And, and we, there's a lot of guesses out there, but nobody's really sure why exactly this food was going to defile Daniel. Um, but what is clear is that Daniel was willing to go along with the Babylonian program to a certain extent, but there was a line that he would not cross. So at some point, he said, this is where I will not go along with it. And if I eat this food that you're giving to me, it will defile me, and I will not do it. Um, so they sought a way out. But the first guy they talked to was unwilling to take a risk by helping them. The text specifically says God had caused this head guy that Daniel went and talked to to like Daniel and to want to help him, but his admiration for Daniel was not enough to overcome his fear of the king. He figured, if I don't give you the good food, you're, you're going to be less healthy than all the other guys here, and the king will come and see that, and he'll say, why are these guys less healthy? And then when I tell them you didn't eat the food, then he's going to blame me, and I'm not gonna, willing to take that risk. And so he said no. But Daniel um, is able to convince the man who is actually delivering the food to put him and his three friends to the test, to let them eat nothing but vegetables and water and see how it affected their health. Now, this story is not about the uh, health effects of vegetarianism, right? Um, this story is about faithfulness to God and how God can even overcome a vegetarian diet to keep you healthy. Um, <laughs> Well, maybe, maybe not, that second part may not, but, but it's about the faithfulness of God. And, um, and, it's just, and under normal circumstances, right, eating meat, drinking a little wine uh, does not cause us to be defiled, but in this case it did. And Daniel and his friends were not willing to do it. And it's interesting, even after their, their first attempt to avoid eating the food, they went and talked to the, the top guy, and he says, no, I'm not, I'm not going to help you. Um, they were persistent, and they kept trying, and they said, well, we're going to find another way to not defile ourselves. And, uh, and presumably, if that attempt had also failed, they would have tried something else. And, uh, and if they were unable to, to find a solution like they did find, um, we assume that they would have went right up to open defiance of the king, which is what they do later in the book. Uh, we'll see that in, in future stories, that they were not willing to cross those lines that they set for themselves, even if it required defiance and, and uh, the threat of death. 
But in this situation, open defiance was not necessary, right? They found a way to just quietly uh, avoid defiling themselves without making too many waves, and they were able to, uh, to have this little test where they said, give us this test for 10 days, see if we're still looking healthy after 10 days, and if so, then we can just continue on with this. And they, they did. So um, they were, uh, in fact, the Bible says that they looked even healthier and stronger than anybody else after that 10-day period. So, um, so let's finish this part of the story, and then let's talk a little bit about what it means for us. It says in verse 17, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel can understand visions and dreams of all kinds. And at the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. And the king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. So they did their three years of training. Why did these guys do so well in their studies and in their learning? It was because God gave them wisdom and knowledge and understanding. Um, the second time God is mentioned as being directly involved in what's happening with them in Babylon. First, it talked about how God had given them favor in the eyes of the guy who was in charge, and now it talks about how he is giving them success in their studies. What does that mean? That means that God has not abandoned his people. Yes, they've been punished for their sins, which has resulted in these guys, you know, feeling the brunt of it, being taken off to a foreign land into exile. Um, but that does not mean that God is done with them. Uh, he continues to be active in their lives, even as they are experiencing the result of their nation's sins. They have remained faithful to God, and he has remained faithful to them. Even though the Bible said in the passage from 2 Kings that we read earlier that God was not willing to forgive the shedding of innocent blood, that did not mean that God had abandoned the faithful remnant of his people and that he was not still willing to forgive the sins of people who, who came to him in humility and in confession of their sins and asked for forgiveness. God would still forgive. And, and, and by the way, that is... Uh, one of the lessons from this uh, passage is that if, if we are feeling like, hey, I have uh, defiled myself with the king's food, I have not been as, as, uh, as careful as I should have been to stay on the right side of the line, then what, what should we do? We should come and confess to God and ask for forgiveness, and he will forgive. And it's due to God's blessing in the lives of these four guys that they were judged by the king to be ten times better than all the rest. And this was not the result of their natural talent or, or their hard work, right? This was, this was the result of God's work in their lives. Um, remember our, our series we just finished on the, the Holy Spirit? And we talked about God wants to work in and through you but you need to raise your sails, and you need to cooperate with the work of God in your life. There was no doubt that these four guys, they did raise their sails. That means they probably uh, 
spent some late nights studying the literature of the Babylonians. But that wasn't why they were successful. They were successful because they were cooperating with the work of God in their lives, and God gave them success in their studies. And then did you notice that last line of the chapter? It says, And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Easy to just kind of overlook that line, but that is a very significant line. Um, If you know who uh, uh, King Cyrus was, and the original readers of Daniel would have very much known who King Cyrus was, because probably this was written while King Cyrus was still around. Um, uh, Cyrus was not a king of Babylon. Cyrus was a king of the Persian Empire. In fact, he was the second Persian king that Daniel served. So how did Daniel end up serving the kings of the Persian Empire? It was the Babylonians who took him off to Babylon, right? Well, we see in chapter 5, we're going to see in the book of Daniel that the Persians came in and conquered the Babylonians and took over their empire. And Daniel kept his position and just continued on serving the Persians just as he had the Babylonians. That means that Daniel not only outlasted Nebuchadnezzar, he outlasted the whole Babylonian empire. And and sure, the Babylonians had been God's tool to punish Israel's sin, but that did not mean that they were better than Israel. In fact, their whole mighty empire didn't even last as long as a lifetime of Daniel himself. Daniel served the Babylonians, and then he served the Persians too. And it was Cyrus, this uh, last king that's mentioned here, who was the one who ended the Jewish exile and sent them back to rebuild their nation. So Daniel also outlived the judgment of God on the people of God. See, in the eyes of many people at the time, when Nebuchadnezzar defeated Israel, Israel's God had lost. The things from the temple of God were taken away and put in a temple in Babylon. But what the Scripture tells us is that that was all done under God's direction. It was all part of God's plan, and His plan included also the return of those very objects to Jerusalem. Cyrus, who is just mentioned here, uh, when he sent the Jews back, he also, uh, specifically it's told in the book of Ezra chapter 1, that he sent back those same objects that were taken away in Daniel chapter 1, and they were taken back to Jerusalem and put in the new temple as it was rebuilt in Jerusalem. So that's one of the big lessons from the first chapter of the book of Daniel. God does send discipline on His people. When we are in habitual sin, He sometimes sends hardships into our lives to shock us out of our sin. But when He does that, He is still active in our lives. He is working in and through us. And His discipline has limits. And we can learn from that discipline and we can be better for it. Another lesson from Daniel that we can, is that we can uh, live for God and be faithful to Him even in the midst of a society that is antagonistic to our faith. So is that similar to our own situation? Well, to some extent it certainly is. Um, and I, I, there's a bit of a question to me whether we should judge our modern American society to be more similar to the unfaithful Israelite society that Daniel and his friends were living in first, or whether it should be more like the Babylonian society that they are in later. 
But regardless, it is becoming more and more true that faithful Christians are a remnant living in a culture that is not obedient to God and not worshiping Him only. And I believe that's actually always been the case in our country, Uh, but I think that the remnant is getting smaller and society is growing less tolerant of the remnant. Personally, I don't think that things are as bad as some people seem to think they are, but regardless, it is clear that those who are faithful followers of God are in a minority in our nation and in every other nation around the world. And one of the key issues where faithful servants of God are finding themselves out of steps with society is the same for us as it was for them. And it is the exclusivity and superiority of Jesus to all other objects of worship. Right? Most of the people in Daniel's day, both the the unfaithful Jews back in Israel and also the Babylonians and people all around the world everywhere, they were polytheists. Polytheists means that they believe in that there are many gods. And so they're fine with you worshiping your own local god. Oh, you're from Judah and you have a god of, that lives in Jerusalem. That's fine. But don't try telling us that that's the only god and that everyone should worship him and that we shouldn't be worshiping our own gods. Uh, you, you can do your own thing. Just don't try to tell us that there's only one true god and all the rest are false gods. And we will see that that is one of the key issues that causes problems for Daniel and his friends later in the book. And it is one of the key issues for us today where our beliefs do not match up with our modern culture. So what do we do when we find that we're living in a society that is not encouraging faithfulness to God? What do we do when we're in a culture that is teaching values that are different from God's values. Well, clearly Daniel and his friends are meant to be examples to us of how to behave when we're in this kind of a situation. And what did they do? Well, we saw in this chapter that what they did is they quietly refused to defile themselves uh, with the king's food. They found a way to stay active and successful in the society in which they lived without compromising their convictions even when those convictions were not shared by the rest of the people around them. They did not try to convince everyone else that the food was defiled and that no one should be eating it. They resolved to not defile themselves. They studied the Babylonian literature. They studied their language. They studied their ways of doing things. Did they find that all of it fit with the ways of God and what they knew to be right? I'm sure they didn't, but they worked within the culture in which they found themselves, and they found ways to stay faithful to God even in the midst of it all. Here's a prophetic word that God sent to the exiles by the prophet Jeremiah. This was a little later when there were a lot more people had been sent into exile in, uh, in uh, Babylon by this time, and we're in... Uh, Jeremiah 24, where it says, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. 
Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. See, God wants His people to thrive in their exile. And He wants them to seek the good of the nation in which they live, even though it is a nation that does not follow God. And this is what Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah do. They prosper in Babylon. They are promoted and they serve as high officials in the Babylonian Empire. And they do it all while staying faithful to God and not crossing the line that would cause them to defile themselves. Now, where exactly are all the lines in our own lives and in our own cultures where, where we need to draw lines? Uh, that's a, a bit of a judgment call that we each have to make for ourselves in, in, in some respects. But the key thing is we need to live in our own culture in a way where we can be a part of the culture, be seeking the good of our society without compromising in our faithfulness to God. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us the example of these four men and for helping them to live for you in the midst of a hostile culture. And we pray that you'd give us wisdom. As we saw in our uh, memory verse, wisdom comes from you. And we ask for it, that you would give us wisdom to know where are the lines that we must not cross. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.